Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm a life coach, author, and speaker. I also work full-time as a process analyst in the power industry. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jessie Tuggy, and I've had diabetes for nine years. I love hiking and painting. I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after I get my degree in college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my life and my future, to learn everything I can about type 1 diabetes. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 113 of This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today I'm talking with Joe Barber, another longtime friend from Panther Camp, about insulin affordability. Jesse is settling in at college, so I'm on my own for this episode. My win this week is that, well, I'm recording this episode way in advance of its release, so by the time you hear this, it's old news, but I got my diabetes alert tattoo. I got it on August 18th, so basically two months before you're hearing this. And you can find a picture of it in the show notes or by heading to our Instagram at this is type one pod. My fail this week is that my last three sensors have had these cutting out incidents for like no particular reason. And so that's fun. But I can't get Dexcom to replace them unless they cut out for more than three hours. And none of them have like none of them so far have cut out for longer than three hours. So that's a little frustrating. The hack this week is actually something that Joe talks about in this episode, but it's good to say it multiple times. If you're in need of insulin, go to the three major manufacturers' websites for their affordability programs, and you can find links to those in the show notes. And now, here's Joe Barber. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you and talk to you. So tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and how you became involved with the type 1 diabetes community. Yeah, thank you. So my name is Joe Barber, and I have worked in the pharmaceutical industry for about 16 years, and specifically in the primarily in the area of of diabetes, both type one and type two. And through that job, obviously, you get to meet a lot of people professionally and publicly that outside of work. And so there's the part of where I got to learn a lot about diabetes, the disease state, and then you actually meet the people. And that's through those opportunities, particularly through Diabetes Camp uh, in our area, Panther Camp, I was able to meet a lot of great people. And that is how I've really been able to take what I do professionally and understand how it actually has an impact on the real world and those people that are actually living with type 1 diabetes. So you mentioned Panther Camp. What is Mm -hmm. your favorite part about the type 1 community in general? whether in person, online, or at camp? That's a great question. And, you know, honestly, I've been the most inspired by those that I've met with type 1 diabetes. And obviously, that by that statement, and, and you already know this, I, I don't have type 1 diabetes, and I don't have a close family member with type 1. But I have made so many friends and connections through my work and through uh, volunteering in the community that have type 1 that this question is actually very easy to answer. And what it is that it that I find the most amazing about the type one community is just the fact that I would I would sum it up that almost everyone I've met with type one, none of them wanted to be diagnosed with type one. But it seems like everyone just wants to like kill life, like just go and live live life like 
harder than people that don't have type one diabetes. It's almost like there's this like, and it's collective for most people. It's like almost, it's not like I'm doing it better than you. It's like as a community, the entire community wants to go out and just prove that they can do life as good or many times better than those that don't have diabetes. And I find that inspiring as someone who doesn't have, you know, have, doesn't have type one to see people that get to live with this for their life. And most, for the most part, people are just out there. And I love the fact that now, even now more than ever, I think people wear their pumps and sensors a lot more out in the open. And I even find, even though I'm not type one, I, I, and I see this with the community, they're like, you see somebody that's got their Dexcom going, right? And you, or you see the, the tubing for their pump and it's immediately like, Hey, and then stories are going on about how they're trying to basically kick life's butt. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long answer, but like I said, it was an easy question to answer because I've seen it over and over and it is, it's my favorite part. I wish, I honestly wish that more people would, would just look at life that way, whether they had any sort of chronic illness, disease or challenge whatsoever. So, so I want to point out that you said we get, we get to live with this disease. Not Mm -hmm. that we have to, like we do have to, but that we get to. And that's like a conscious decision that type one diabetics, when they're in the space that you're talking about, that we make to like take diabetes by the horns and like show it who's boss. Yes. Yes. I love it. So I'm, I'm surprised that you got into the pharmaceutical like career path when you have like zero connection to type one or type two in your family. How did, like, how did that even happen? That's a great question. And, you know, it's an interesting industry because I, and I'll just be frank, I think there's a lot of amazing things that the industry does and has done. And there's a lot of reason for people to kind of have some complaints with the industry. So I'll be upfront and say, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of those things down the road. But for me personally, the thing that attracted it to me was not necessarily any particular disease state. It's the fact that I grew up, I was totally an athlete. I was always like a class clown. I tried to be Mr. Popular and, you know, I just love to talk to everybody, but secretly, and this is still the case, I was like, I loved science. I was kind of a science nerd and I still am. And so I would literally take every book at home that I could find about science or like even, even like books on manuals on not just how to do mechanical stuff, but on like how detergents would clean. You know, like you'd get a new dishwasher and it would tell you how I would read it and I'd be fascinated by the process. So as I grew up and went to school, I took every science class possible, including when I was in high school. I actually, not that this matters to the podcast, but I almost, I was one class short of taking every single science class, including advanced classes in my high school from all the way from biology, chemistry, aeronautics, everything, because I loved it. So as I grew up, Went through college. I got a degree in psychology, which is definitely more of a light, you know, different type of a science, but science and minored in physiology. And I went out and I realized that with my personality, sales was a great thing that I liked. And and not so much, I've never looked at sales as trying to trick somebody into doing something they don't want. It's more about finding things in life that I love and I'm excited about and then telling people about them. And if it makes sense for their lives, then great, right? And we, I think we all do that, whether we, you know, like books or on your podcast, you're always talking about great things that you want to share with people. And so I realized that that was the path I wanted to go, but I was doing it in areas that weren't with really science and physiology. And I realized that there was this job out there where I could go out. And if I had a company that had great products, 
that could actually really change people's lives. And I could help hospitals and doctors and clinics and educators and pharmacists help people to understand them and get access to them, then it would be a win-win for everybody. And that's how I got into what I do today. That is an awesome story. Like being so obsessed with science that you take almost all of the classes offered. That is awesome. (laughs) I would have taken the last one, but truth be told, I got elected to student office and I was required to take leadership class that actually was at the same time as the last science class. And so I, I actually, I wrote a letter to the superintendent asking for an exception for the leadership requirement and they would not grant it to me. So I ended up having, so I was going to finish it, but then I couldn't because I, it was my senior year and I took the leadership class and then I graduated and that was that. So anyway, <laughs> I can Just hear that you're straight. still a little bit bitter about this. <laughs> Yeah, there's a part of me that's like, is there a way to go back and take that just for, you know, just for brownie points? But I guess not. It'd be kind of weird. I, I think maybe a return, uh, like a mature returning student in college is okay, but I'm not going to try and be Billy Madison. I don't think that would work. <laughs> what was the class that you that you weren't able to take? It was actually aeronautics. I spoke when I spoke earlier. I was saying two aeronautics. That was the class that I missed, and so it was aeronautics, and they actually were. It did have some stuff on like projectile things that you got to build and actually go out and do. So I don't remember all the details. That was several years ago, but yeah, but it was aeronautics. So that was the one, but I, I got marine biology and chemistry, advanced chemistry. I don't, I can't even tell you everything I did. It was fun. I could go back and look, but I'm kind of jealous, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still, I still love, I still read every label ever known to man. Anyone that I see, I read it. I still read every once in a while, I'll dust off some of my uh, textbooks from college. The only ones I kept, you know, because you keep, you, you buy them all. The only ones I kept were all of my phys- anatomy and physiology, mammalian physiology, general biology. I kept all of those. And every once in a while, I'll just pull them out and just read because I'll be like, oh, what is the, the process of cell reproduction in, in, in an animal? I go back and read it for whatever Nerd. reason. <laughs> There you go. Told you, nerd. But I then love I have it. to be gregarious and loud, and then nobody knows. So, anyway. Well, now they do. Now they do. Yeah. True. Okay. So, what was what's your favorite memory from Panther Camp? Wow. I would pick one specific story, but I've actually seen it repeated more than once. And at Panther Camp, I've gotten. I've been there for a number of years. I don't remember how many years now. Maybe nine, ten, eleven, something in that range. And I started out just a you know one day helper. Now I do a lot of stuff, and you you've been there. I kind of end up being kind of the camp MC. And one of my favorite things, and I saw it when I was just helping one day, just working with another counselor. And now as I have my own group that I lead and and kind of overall with the camp, my favorite thing at Panther Camp is hearing stories from just little newly diagnosed type one diabetics. And I don't mean little in stature, just, you know, in age and and in terms of their time with the disease. And when they step up and share where they've made some sort of a connection with somebody, or they overcame something that they were scared about, right? They, they did their own poke for their, to check their glucose, or they, you know, they changed their, their sight for the first time by themselves. Every time you would think after all these years and hearing like dozens and dozens of these little stories that it would be kind of like, okay, whatever. Every time it like gets you. And that's my favorite thing because I think it goes back to what I said about the community. It's, it's that kind of mentality, like from the very beginning of stepping through obstacles and challenging 
you know, as a type one diabetic, challenging yourself to not be afraid of the disease and, uh, and life around you. Because it, I would imagine, again, that I can't speak from experience of my own, but I can imagine that the, that it would be scary. And it, and it probably there's, and I imagine it never all the way goes away. So it's constantly a battle of, of winning on a daily basis. So when it comes to Panther camp, we do a lot of those, those celebrations and it is still my favorite part of camp. I mean, I like the, the puppets, you know, the, the, the mascots that dress up and do fun games, they would be a close second, but it's the success stories and the overcoming challenges that are my favorite. And all of the kids who listen to those stories from the, the younger kids, it's, it's so inspiring, not just to people like, like you who don't have it, but to the other kids who haven't maybe stepped up yet. Like I remember uh-huh. going from infusion sites on my stomach to using more of my butt. And I was mm-hmm. terrified <laughs> to move from my stomach to my butt and to do it myself. And I just remember all of that stress. And this happened at home. This didn't happen at camp. But mm-hmm. I just remember all of the stress and the buildup and the anxiety. And then when I finally did, I'm like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. It's yeah, it's the best part. Okay, so turning, switching gears a little bit to why you're on for today, what is your take on the insulin affordability problem right now in the United States? Oh, this one, you would think automatically that based on my background and in the industry I work in, I would come out right away and, and give you all the reasons why it's not as bad as we think. But the reality is, and I, I know that you are probably very close to this, I know you've done other uh, episodes uh, on this, it is a real problem. I can tell you that I spend a lot of time looking at it, trying to find ways to connect people with whatever available options are out there. And I know we'll discuss those, but my take is that I think oftentimes it's very easy to look at one part of the entire machine that is responsible for our entire healthcare system and the delivery of medications like insulin, including the manufacturers, but also those that distribute, those that reimburse. There's a lot of layers. And I think the hardest thing is it's very easy to look at one area and say, this is the problem because from my experience and what I've researched, it, it is not just one area. And that is why it's so hard to fix. And I know not everyone necessarily would believe me. And it'd be really easy if I said, Oh, this is the problem. If we fixed it, it's done. It's not that simple. And I, I don't know that we have enough time on this entire podcast to cover all of the different nuances of what's going on out there in, and why there, you know, when one, one entity makes a step, then it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's because there are so many different people involved. And so my take on it is that there are a lot of things that are changing. It can't stop. It needs to continue to move forward. And I know we'll talk about how to, to do that. But I also know that there have been a lot of changes that have been made that really, really do expand the capability for people to get access to affordable insulin and, and quickly. But unfortunately, I think that sometimes the negative attention on insulin affordability is what sells and what tends to come to the top and be shared. And some of those other opportunities are missed because they're not shared as readily. And that's not to point any blame. And that's one of the reasons I'm so motivated to come on is that when I hear stories of insulin rationing or people that can't get their insulin, and I think that I did, and I, I had one recently when I said, did you try this? It was a, a woman that works in, a, in a, a clinic and she was out of her insulin. She was type two diabetic. So it wasn't as 
immediate, but she very much needed it to stay in control or get to another medication. And then she did rely on it. And I said, she goes, I don't have any. I'm like, this is my last, I think it was like a Thursday. And she goes, I'll be out by Saturday and I don't know what to do. And I'm worried about my blood glucose getting out of control. And I said, did you use this program? You could go right now and get this for free. And then you'll have time to work out some other programs. And she had no idea. And so those are the kind of things. So I've kind of taken this too far. I think to, to just kind of sum it back up, I think that it's a multi-faceted problem that is being addressed in a lot of different ways. And I know we all want the fix now, but I think it's coming. Unfortunately, there are some gap or there are some stop gaps. They're just not well known. And so hopefully we can help people understand what those are and we can at least help people for now until there's a better solution overall. I'm glad you said that there is not just one simple fix. I have read the Senate Finance Committee report on insulin affordability, and there are so many moving pieces. That was Mm -hmm. just a high level thing about like insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers and the manufacturers and how everybody is like taking pieces of the pie. And it's just, it's frustrating, but also very complicated. It is. And the hard part is if you make a change in one area, it affects everyone in that group and you have to you have to fix it so that the end user and for insulin which would be you for example we need to get it to you but some of these changes never make it there and that's been the other problem right so there are so many things and so like most things when you get to that many people involved and you get to a level of bureaucracy that's involved you know to try and regulate these things it's really hard to make a change and have it happen quickly and yeah, and, and quite frankly, you know, a lot of the people are going, no, that we don't want things to change. Thankfully, there are a lot that have been like, okay, yes, this needs to change. And so that's the thing that if you were to ask me, although you didn't, if you were to ask me if I have some optimism, that's what I see a lot of people coming to the table, especially at the federal level, looking at it as a country, including manufacturers, the companies that manufacture insulin, as well as the pharmacy benefit managers, as well as major insurance companies and a lot of the distributors that also have their markups, you know, the the ones that are providing the medication between the manufacturer and the pharmacy and their, and and pharmacies are involved because they actually want patients to be able to get stuff more affordably because a lot of people, when they don't get it or they can't get it, then they're also suffering. And so there are a lot of people that are ready to, to try and do something. So crossing our fingers, but anyway, so back to the program you mentioned that you talked to that woman who, with type 2 about. So on that line, how can type 1 diabetics find programs like that to help pay for insulin if they're facing those affordability problems? Okay, great question. I had kind of debated about the best way to answer it because it's it's specific to the different manufacturers. So as we know in, in the United States, we have three suppliers of insulin primarily. You've got Sanofi, Nova Nordisk, and Eli Lilly. It would be nice if I could tell you that there was one way that it worked the same for each one. It doesn't. And so rather than go over each program, what I can tell you is this. All three of them have on their websites, if you go, so let's say you are you have one of the insulins, you could literally type in thatinsulin.com or thatcompany.com, right? And they they all on the landing pages, I confirmed this yesterday, all on their landing pages will have an affordability help section. And it's it's very bold right at the top of their, on the very front page near the top of their websites. So to answer your question, the very first thing I would do 
if I needed to get access to insulin and wanted to find out what programs were available to me, would be to go directly to the manufacturer of the insulin that you use and see what what's available. In addition, all three of them, well, they'll list what their programs are and the eligibility requirements. And that's really important. Some of them are very easy. They're very upfront and say, it doesn't matter. You can have, a, for example, a 30-day supply as long as you're a U.S. citizen. Or I'm not sorry, a citizen, a resident. They don't provide it outside of the country. It's for U.S. So you just have to be a U.S. resident and you have to basically just make sure you write your name down so that, you know, you, and that's it. And you go to the pharmacy and you can get a insulin that day. You have to have a prescription, of course, if it's a prescriptive insulin, but you can get insulin today for 30 days. And the goal though is, well, let me, let me back up. So there are programs each one. All three of them also have a phone number that has a customer care center that will talk to you about your specific situation so they can try and find you a solution that's long-term. And that's where I was about to go, but I wanted to back up the phone number because we all know that if you're able to get a one-month supply of insulin, that's fine for one month, but what about the other 11? And so many of these programs now have customer care centers that will literally help you identify whether you're eligible for government assistance, which we know is if that is something where you could get help, that's one of the best areas because that will help you beyond just your insulin, your medication. And if you're on other medications, that could also help you get those as well, as we know that you know, oftentimes there are other autoimmune conditions that you might have that you might be taking medication for. And if you need assistance, they can help you with all of that. So to answer your question, the very first thing I would do, go directly to the website for the insulin that you use and look at what's available, call the telephone number and discuss it. And it's not even a bad idea to do it now before you have a problem so you know what's available. I recommend that all the time so that that way you don't find yourself in a situation and then you're scrambling. It's nice to know that if you have a problem, you can get your insulin for a capped amount of money a month. So if you lose your job, you can go, okay, well, I know that this company is going to let me have my this amount of insulin for $35 a month or $50 a month. In fact, none of them right now, none of the three companies will let any, for, for most amounts of insulin, they are capped but they're pretty generous. I mean, it's up to two or three vials of insulin for each company. None of them will charge more than $100 direct for that much insulin, which I know is still $100. But if you needed a month supply and could get $100, you could walk into the pharmacy and get it without your insurance right now, without any paperwork or anything. It's for most of them. So these are the things that are out there. Some of them are as low. They might be a smaller quantity, but they're as low as $35. So if you look at those, you can find it. So last part of that that I want to cover, and it's, I'm pushing a lot into this section, but the last thing to, to consider is that I know that it's not always easy to change insulins for everyone, but for some, you can. So I'm not recommending or advocating that people change their insulin, but if you're in a pinch and one program fits you better than another, and you talk to your healthcare provider and you agree that it makes sense to change to a different insulin, that might be another thing to consider. And I'm not talking about going over to MPH, which we all know is a long time backup option for $25 a vial for MPH and regular insulin, which is still available. We're talking about your, your, you know, your logs, your Humalog, Novalog, Apedralog, even though that's not what it's called. We'll just call it that for fun. If you can switch to one of those, you may 
based on your situation, get a better deal. And obviously, as long as it's okay with your provider and, and your health. So that is really, really good information. And we will link to all of those uh, websites in the show notes. And if we can, we'll also provide the phone numbers. Yeah, okay. we'll be able to find those. Yeah. So I'm assuming all of these programs are uh, helpful for type one diabetics who don't have insurance. But what is, is there anything else that type ones who don't have insurance that they can do to maybe like help their situations out for long-term? That's a great question. So before I give you another area, one of the things, as I mentioned, those phone numbers, a lot of times if you call and obviously if you don't have insurance, now, wait, let me clarify. You said that don't have insurance yeah, or do so have if, insurance? If type ones don't have insurance, yes. they need to get insulin. Yes. So if you call those phone numbers, some of them have the immediate use programs, like I mentioned, so they'll at least help you up front. Many of them have patient assistance programs. And what most people don't realize is that many of the companies, if you do not have insurance, they will, you have to provide proof of income, which typically they've, they've simplified it. It used to be what felt like you're giving every, it was harder to, the, to qualify for patient assistance than to buy a house. And if anyone's ever bought a house or a car, you know that there's like 58 feet of paperwork. Most of the time, it's a very simple, you know, showing pay stubs or something to prove income. You always have to do that. But most of the companies will provide assistance to patients who make up to 400% of the federal poverty limit, which nobody right now, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most of us don't know what the federal poverty limit guidelines are for our age. But what I can tell you is for an individual, 400% of federal poverty is over $50,000 a year. So, if you're a younger person working hard at a at a job that pays, let's say, minimum wage, and you're working full time, there is a very real possibility that you can still and you don't, but you're not able to get enough. Your job doesn't offer you benefits, and you can't get insurance. You're not you're not insured. You should be able to get your insulin for free from the three major manufacturers. But most people have no idea. They think, well, if I, you know, you have. You have to be on some form of some form of government assistance before you can receive that that patient assistance. It's not true, and I know that um, they they usually use four hundred percent as the cutoff. That number goes up almost every year based on the guidelines from the the government. Not guaranteed, but it goes up. Uh, that means if you're a married couple, off the top of my head, I should have done the math. I wasn't prepared, but I and, and it's really easy to find it. And I there's a website I can send you. We can link to, but there's a chart. And it just shows the federal poverty limit and you can go through and look at what the, what the boxes are and 400% is right out there. But I believe it's almost, it's like 69,000 in income for, a, for a couple, for two people. So it's, it's pretty generous. Um, if you really think about what's available and people have no idea. I spend, I've done a lot of visits with hospitals, especially because they discharge patients that come in that and say they're in DKA. Oftentimes, it, that that's the exact person that not that it's the only person, but somebody without insurance that can't afford insulin is very likely to end up in the hospital to try and manage an DK or some other very out of control glucose event. And so they go to discharge them and they don't have any idea what they're going to do. Where's the patient? Get, what are they going to do? They're going to be they're OK now. We send them out. They don't have access to insulin. And I've worked a lot with the social workers and the discharge planners at hospitals to let them know these numbers and they keep the chart nearby and they hand out patient assistance to whatever insulin they're using because each company has their own form and people are blown away. They're blown away by how many people can qualify for insulin. So, and if we have anybody listening that 
is older. This also applies to the Medicare community that run through the donut hole. So if you're older and have type 1 diabetes and you are insured, but you're on Medicare and you run into the donut hole, you can qualify for patient assistance at the exact same percentage. So we're not trying to forget those older mature type ones in terms of mature and age. So these things are available again, and they're all on the website. When you go to insulin affordability, almost all three of them easily link you to the patient assistance program, or you can call the phone number if you don't like using the computer. And for anybody who is confused about the donut hole, I did an episode with Kathy Klein from Medicare Quick, and she did a very good explanation of what the donut hole is. And we will link to that in the show notes. Excellent. So quick point of clarification, is this Are these insulin affordability programs also applied to the long-lasting insulin? So like Lantus, Levomir, Bisagler, any of those? Yes. So if you get qualified for patient assistance for Sanofi, for example, well, actually all three of them, let's just make it general. If you're qualified for patient assistance and approved, you get access to rapid rapid acting insulin long-acting insulin, and most of them will even, not that it's typically used in the type 1 setting, but they offer the premix insulins, and then they and then they often offer it in vial or pen, depending on the way you need it. Because uh, obviously not everyone uses a pump, for example, and might like to do the rapid insulin with a pen. That's fine. So they, they make that available. So yeah, it's a very good clarification. And once you're approved, they typically don't, they, they, um, typically last between six and 12 months before you would need to reapply. Most of the time it's a year, but sometimes it, the reason I'm saying typically is sometimes they change, but, and it, sometimes it can depend on when you're approved in the year. So historically some in the past, they would have you renew every like January. And so if you started in June, for example, you have to do it again sooner. But now most of them just go on a 12-month rolling cycle. And it's a very it's a shorter application to, to reapply. So, yeah. That's all good to Great know. Question. I think we kind of already covered this with the access to all the programs. But do you have any more uh, tips for type 1s who, if they're running low on insulin, things to do to avoid rationing? Wow. That's a really, really good question. And I think you are back to look at the access programs. And... If it were me in that situation, I would call immediately to the companies directly. Most of them list on their website. They do say that if you are at risk of rationing or if you are running out of insulin, the wording is different in each one, but they're all saying the same thing that to call and they will discuss your options with you. Like I said, some of them make it easier. You can literally see, you can click a link that says you're at risk of rationing insulin and that's where they'll give you a 30-day supply that you can go immediately to the pharmacy with a prescription and pick it up that day for free, which by the way, that typically, that depending on the company, this is again, why you want to look and see what makes the most sense for you. Some of the companies don't require any evidence of insurance. You can just go get it because you need it. It could be just a bad month. You, whatever the reason you could be applying for patient assistance, which, oh, by the way, if you are applying because you do meet those qualifications, you're thinking, okay, my income is within the guidelines. I'm going to apply but I need insulin today. And it sometimes can take, depending on the company and the, and if you, maybe you forgot to check a box and it takes a little longer, it can take, you want to plan two to two to four weeks to get that application processed. So most of them have a way to help you out in the meantime, because obviously if you're applying, then you need help. So they'll do that. So I would say if you are at risk, do that. And then I know some of the other 
kind of tips and tricks you probably have shared before and the community probably is pretty aware of. But oftentimes, if you're in a real quick pickle, depending on your insurance provider, your, I'm sorry, your healthcare provider, you may be able to get a sample to get you through a, a, a tough spot. I know in most cases, providers, you know, if they know that a patient is at risk of rationing, they'll, they'll help them out. Obviously, there is the, there is the, um, the older insulins that you can go if you, I mean, geesh, again, it's hard for me because I'm not type one. So I know I don't have the same credibility, but I thought, you know, I've always thought to myself, if I could not get any access to any insulin and I could walk into one of the major stores because Walmart, CVS and Walgreens now all have these discounted insulin programs. And if I could get insulin right now without a prescription and it would keep me alive, I think that would motivate me. Although I think that's not the best answer long-term. And so, you know, I, I think, yeah, which also, by the way, I did hear, and we will, that could be a def- another thing we can look up. It, it does, uh, Walmart did announce that they are looking at a next generation insulin, I guess we could call it, that they're going to put on their value program. I don't have all the details as of this podcast, but it is starting soon. Uh, you'll be able to get a long acting insulin that is a new generation insulin for a flat fee. I don't remember the total, but I believe, I do know that it's no more, it's not more than $50 for a vial of the the newer insulin, which is considerably less than if you were to have to pay cash through your insurance plan. So we can look that up and get back to your listeners about that. That we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, you've, yes, you've yeah. mentioned a couple times that a prescription is required. What about diabetics who don't have an endocrinologist? Did, is there still ways for them to get in the, like the fast acting analog insulins without a prescription? Sadly, no. Now you may not, you don't have to have an endocrinologist though to get a prescription. Uh, most of the time you could go into an urgent care facility. You could go into a hospital and, you know, say that you are a type one diabetic that you do not have access to insulin and you need to be seen and they should be able to. I mean, insulin is one of those things that it's not like fentanyl or Viagra that somebody's going to get and really have an easy time turning around and selling to someone else, right? I mean, not that it couldn't happen, but there's not a huge black market for it. So it's not as, it's not a scheduled product that, you know, you can't walk in and get. But yeah, unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, actually, quite frankly, it's for the safety of, of citizens of the United States. You're for prescription medications. You are required to have one. And that's, that's the sticking point is that a company, a pharmacy will not give you a prescription medication without it. And that's why I've said with a prescription, unless we're talking about your human insulin, your your NPH and, and regular Novolin or, or Humulin, and those are still available without a prescription. And someday people should look up the story as to why those have been available for so many years without a prescription. It's actually a pretty cool story that I don't have all the details on. That's why somebody else has to look it up. <laughs> Man, now I have to do a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually pretty cool. I know enough of it, but I I would hate to do this on record and get a detail or two wrong since I wasn't prepared. Uh, I, I I like to be accurate. So thank you. So a lot of really really good information in there. If listeners want to get involved in advocacy for insulin affordability, where can they start? That is a great question. As of course they all are, Colleen. You're fantastic at asking questions. There are a lot of different opportunities for advocacy. So I think there's two parts. The first part is there's the opportunity to just get involved and get back and be a part of the community and, and to actually interact with people in community settings. So 
you can and and I'll tie this back to our our topics that we've been covering. But if you get involved with your local JDRF chapter, for example, or your ADA chapter, you get working with diabetes camps like Panther Camp in our area. Well, my area. And there's other ones in my area too. Camp Leo, we can't forget about that. If you get involved with those groups, you can share information like what we've shared today with others in your community locally. And that will have a big impact on trying to help spread the word that there have been a lot of changes to what is available to people today and let's get the word out. So I think that's the one of the great ways we can advocate for what's what's available, take advantage of those programs. The more the programs we're taking advantage of, the the more that's positive feedback that they're that they're appreciated. And I know that they're not they're not the final answer, but hopefully that makes sense. Um, so that's one way. The other thing is, and I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, there's a lot of momentum in government today, not just at the federal national level per se, which there is a lot. And the good news is if you, if you looked at that, that finance committee hearing, like you mentioned, or if you start to look at other briefings, you'll be impressed by who's actually showing up and discussing these things and advocate. It would, it would surprise you that some of the projects that are being worked on, like capping insulin federally for Medicare Part D, again, for patients that are, let's just be honest, they've, they've worked hard, they're retired, their incomes are limited, and now the rest of us are helping to support them and take care of them, then there are programs to limit insulin cost to them for $35. They're already start, they've, they've started to roll those out and they're going, when you look at who's involved in those, it would blow your mind. You're like, wait a minute. These are all the people that we think don't want to have things happen and they're starting. So with that said, there's always the opportunity to try and try and support that. But how, it's really hard to think of how do I support a congressperson, right? Like a federal. Well, you start with your local representatives and everyone. I know that in our area, in Washington state, we always have a day, a diabetes day at the Capitol. And I know that we're not alone, that many other states do it. Go look it up, find out. There are always local chapters Oftentimes, like, you know, we know the bigger national ones like JDRF, but there's always often local chapters. But if you can't even figure out what local chapters are that advocate that you can go and be a part of, just get on your computer, look up who your local senator is, right? And write them a letter or go to their office. And if you're type one diabetic, talk to them about what it means to you. Two things. Talk about the challenges that you've faced or, you know, in your community and then talk about what solutions would make sense and look at these links that we've talked about. Look at the, the different programs that are being presented in your area and they're all available. If you just, just Google it or Bing it or whatever at all, I guess I'm not trying to brand one search engine. You search engine it and find out seriously, but look up, you can look up legislation Look up type one diabetes legislation and then type in whether it's your county or your state and you'll find out what is being looked at and talked about in your area. Find out who's attached to it. Go to those people. Talk to them about your experience. Tell them what would change for you. And that's the best way you get involved because they're going to then carry it back up and continue to put pressure on those at the top that make the decision. And finally, use your voice to share. Not just some of the stories, like it breaks my heart 
when I hear a story of someone that's had to ration insulin and had a really bad event. I mean, the worst obviously is if someone's lost their life, but there are plenty of other stories of people that have ended up in the hospital and that they're, you get the, you see an Instagram story and please pray. And every time I do, but then I also think to myself, can we, you know, do they know about some of these programs? Can they share the story and change everyone's opinion and make these programs better? So that was a long answer. I get passionate. I'm sorry. Hopefully your listeners are like, Oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. It's, it's because I'm the things I'm passionate about in life. I'm super passionate about. And as, as we talked about in the, in the, the very beginning, I've been so inspired by the spirit of the type one diabetes community. I wish that I had the power to, to make everything the way that I wish it could be. And I don't. And so the way that I advocate is the ways I just expressed and telling as many people as possible about what's available and then saying, let's use that and let's continue to move the sticks a little farther and a little farther. And hopefully we will, well, heck, hopefully there'll be a cure at some point. But until that time, hopefully we'll hear less and less about people that can't get access to insulin, right? Oh, I, I really hope so. I, I personally don't think there's going to be a cure in my lifetime just I'm, that's my pessimistic side coming out. Maybe there will be one eventually, <laughs> but all of the all of the tips that you just shared are are very relevant for what's going on right now. Yeah, good. Yeah, just don't 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 give up. Keep with it. And I would I would just say I think that if you're part of the Type One community or you know you've been involved in advocacy, you've been doing a bang up job because I mean look. I'm sure that some of you have been surprised by what we've talked about, and it only scratches the surface of what's going on in favor of making insulin easier to access and more affordable to get. It's because of all of you that have been sharing your stories and have been writing your centers and have been, and, and have been getting out and being a part of your community and making your voice be heard. And I'm right there with you. So I'm, I'll continue to partner with you from my side and I'll just, like I said, do everything I possibly can. So if you do that and I do that and we all do that, then it's going to continue. It's going to get where we want it to go. I hope so. Do you have any advice for the young or newly diagnosed diabetics out there? You know, I do. I would say the the advice would be connect yourself with a camp, as you can tell, I love camps or some other sort of area where you're, when you're newly diagnosed and, and maybe you're, I know that not everyone is a, a six year old when they're diagnosed or younger, right? And so camp is super fun. Maybe you're, maybe you're 20 years old. Maybe you're older, right? But find your community. That'd be the first thing I do. Your, your people right away and get connected because you will be inspired, encouraged, challenged, and it will set you on the right path. Because I've known enough people, one of the things I get in my industry, I have a lot of friends that don't have uh, diabetes. But what has happened is I've gotten multiple phone calls when their child is diagnosed and at multiple different ages. And I've got that call because we're here. Oh my gosh, we know that you're in the, in the, in the industry. What, what do I do? And it's the most scary thing. And I tell them all the time, of course, you answer all the questions, you learn all you can. And the very next thing is get connected because then you're going to learn so much more than you ever thought. You're going to 
it's a lot to process and you're going to have friends to help you through it. So that'd be my number one bit of advice is to literally just get connected as soon as possible. I love that because I've seen so many people in the diabetes Facebook groups and even like the diabetes app where they have never met or even like talked to another type one diabetic in like either real life or online. So just Mm -hmm. getting connected is is such a, such a key piece. And I think I was like kind of lucky in that I started at camp when I was six. So I've never known anything else besides just being plugged into the diabetes community. It's Mm -hmm. such a great, great, it's so awesome. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And I think that's, uh, thanks for that reinforcement of that, that thought, because yeah, it, it, it would be lonely. I would also say that my son has also volunteered at Panther Camp. He, like I mentioned earlier, I have no one in my family with type one diabetes. And so he does not have diabetes, but he's gone with me to help out. And actually he went to camp. This is, you know, I'm there and he's got to go somewhere. And the coolest thing about that is he learned so much about the type one community and about kids that as he's gotten older, he's met a couple of kids through primarily he does a lot of sports and he's met kids with type one diabetes and he's been able, and he's a really big, tall, strong, loud kid. And so there's always the, Oh my gosh, you got diabetes and people figure it out. Right. And they're looking at the kid, like, can you play baseball or can you play the sport? And you know, the other teammates are wondering, you know, cause I, I have one kid I can think of wears a pump and he's got it in his back pocket of his, baseball pants and of course everyone thinks it's his phone and then they're like what's that tube right and then you know they're all wondering like worried about him and my son since he's been so connected in he's like nope and he just steps right up and and he knows what's going on and but then at the same time he has that confidence of knowing what to look for if there were ever a problem then he he knows what to look for and he's super confident and then of course this particular player i can i'm thinking of in this particular story and there actually have been three different stories like this over the last seven years that he's been going to camp is this one particular one that kid was really comforted to know okay my coaches have no idea about diabetes they're not sure if i can play or if i'm tired my is my low blood sugar and sam my son was or my son was very much able to again talk to him build him up and he's like cool i have somebody that knows on my team because mom or dad in this case it's a minor mom or dad isn't on the field so or in the dugout and so anyway that goes all again back to that idea of i think it's great to to be connected whether even if you are listening to this and you don't have type 1 diabetes get involved go to a diabetes walk go to a support group and learn because you know heck i know we have a again i'm i'm rambling on but we have a we have two close family friends one's in the neighborhood the other one went to our church and they had kids that in my in our recent lifetime were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and the only place they would allow them to have sleepovers was at our house for a while because they didn't want to send their relatively newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic child young teenage person to a house where they don't know what the heck they're doing. And, but they'll send them to our house because we know. So again, it's all about being connected. So speaking of being connected, if our listeners want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Oh, well, as we spoke about earlier, I'm old and boring. I do have a Facebook page, which tells you probably my age right there. And it's not very exciting. It's Joe Barber. I'm in Washington state. And I'm, I'm sure that you'll tell me how that I can give the information for that. I also have an email address that I'm happy to answer to. I'm boring that way as well, but those are probably the best ways to reach out to me. 
All right. We will link to your Facebook page and to your email in the show notes if people want to reach out to you. Cool. I would love that. Thank you again so much for coming on to talk about this because this is such an important topic. I just want to, again, say thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And it's I really appreciate all the work that you do. I follow your podcast. They're very informative and you do a fantastic job. So thanks for all the work you do advocating for your community. All right. Our question for you guys this week is, did you know about these different affordability options? Because I didn't. I actually learned quite a bit from Joe during this interview. Let us know in the comments what you would do if you had to find insulin fast. And that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much again to Joe Barber for coming on as a guest to the show. You can find him on Facebook or by email, and the links to both of those are in the show notes. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 113. That's the number, 113. You can apply to be a guest by visiting thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. And if you want a hit of focused inspiration in your inbox every week, sign up for my email list at inspiredforward.com. I'm on all social media and Clubhouse as at inspiredforward, on the diabetes app as at Colleen Mitchell, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Our podcast Instagram is at thisistype1pod. That's the number one. Jesse's personal Instagram is at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Feel free to send her questions or comments you have about type one or the show. And if you do reach out on Instagram to her, just make sure you let her know that you are a listener. Thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to listen next week for another episode about real life with type one diabetes. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.